Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. Recording this on a Monday evening, 5.13 p.m., 69 degrees and sunny, blue, blue skies staring back at me. Getting going a little bit early on this episode. Why is that? Well, I gotta get this done tonight. Tomorrow is my amazing queen's birthday, and guess who can't work and isn't working on Tuesday? That would be me. So, gonna knock this out. Tell you up front, let's see. Romain Groschamp, he's gonna be our guest. He's gonna join us on Wednesday. That will be Romain's first appearance, I believe, on the Weekend IndyCar show. He's joined us a couple times for some other more direct podcast stuff, but Romain will be joining us, so looking forward to that. What else? Uh, we're going to head out this weekend. Huh. Be our first vacation in more than two years, and oh, I cannot wait. So this is my wife's birthday present. I don't know what to call it, but does she deserve some time away from either home or all the things that she's been uh, visiting over the past couple of years, fighting all the things she's been fighting. So, <sighs> so weird thing where I will not indeed be following or doing anything related to IndyCar at Mid-Ohio this weekend. I might be lying if I said I won't try and keep an eye on it on Sunday somehow, but maybe that won't happen. Worst case, I will catch up on everything when I get home. Uh, we're not going to be home till after the event, so just a little heads up that not sure exactly when next week's Weekend IndyCar listener Q&A is going to get done. Is that a Tuesday, Wednesday? Not sure. But, uh, yeah, just really thankful. Really thankful that we're able to go do this very short little getaway. Got a friend coming over to... Uh, stay and keep an eye on things and the cats so there you go quick little update on the home front why don't we say a very awesome thank you to you for all of your questions let me look at the count that our pal jim kaiser puts them together thankfully with a weekend off we don't have an insane amount that came in 54 questions it's still a freaking lot of questions about 3300 words so manageable super super manageable i'm guessing the way mid ohio tends to go oh we're gonna have more than that to digest next week but anyways thanks to you and all the questions you sent in huge massive thank you to the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com who will be at mid ohio with their traveling merchandise booth please go visit them check my social media at marshall pruitt later this week have some details on where they're going to be and some specials that'll be going on and then obviously, Cooper Tires, huge, huge love for Cooper Tires. All they do for the road to Indy, making those next generation stars. All the support that they give us, signing up again uh, just recently to come back for next year, way in advance of next year. So, so happy about that. And then lastly, spent some time over the weekend adding items to the new MarshallPruittPodcast.com merchandise page, added 10 new items. And I think mostly we're in the, uh, what, button and memorabilia section. And if everything arrives tomorrow as they should be, oh, there's going to be some good stuff for uh, IndyCar fans, especially those 
or fans of 1990s cart IndyCar stuff. So you might check that out, the marshallpruittpodcast.com and our new merchandise page. Uh, everything you buy there helps us, helps my wife and I. So really do appreciate how many of you have already done that and for all those who would consider it. So, all right, that's it. A uh, little bit of uh, intro music back again, and we're going to get rolling with questions. Hey, I wrote a little thing today. Going to kick things off with Todd Hudson. How you doing, Todd? Love the fact that our man Jim Kaiser has moved this to the top of the opening block of questions. We always tend to open on something a little deeper, dive a little deeper before moving on to the rest of the goodies. Indeed, Andretti Autosport. Oh, there's changes coming. Kind of had a feeling that it was happening, but uh, speaking with Michael Andretti, did confirm that yes, there's going to be well, there's going to be some change. How many drivers? Uh, we'll get into some of the other questions here. See how much we want to flesh out. Knowing that I have a silly season piece, a mid season piece going. I don't know. I got a lot of pieces going. Uh, but let's get opening here with Todd. It says, "Hey Marshall, after reading an article on a racer about potential shakeups at Andretti, my question is: When teams are struggling as a whole." What measurables are used when evaluating drivers rather than obvious things like speeding in the pits, causing avoidable accidents, etc.? Awesome question, Todd. Perfect choice, by the way, Jim, for an opener, because this is a nuanced thing. If you were to take this out of the motor racing realm and put it into stick and ball sports, where metrics are heavily used, measurables are massively important. I think it'd be a lot easier to say, hey, your free throw percentage is way down, your three-point shooting is way down, your foul rate is way up, uh, you've been intercepted twice the amount as last year, you've struck out, etc., etc. Some real easy areas to go, hey, we got your numbers from last year. They're pretty much straight up comparison to this year. And these are the deficiencies. We're talking about a player that you might swap out, trade, fire, or otherwise. I'd say it's a lot easier in the stick and ball sports to rely on those metrics, Todd, than we would in motor racing. Why? Well, you can come up with excuses for why you struck out why you threw that interception, why you shot an air ball. There's not a lot of extenuating circumstances. That's the big thing that's different for us here. And for some of you, I'm probably overstating the obvious, but we do need to take this into account. So like you said, speeding in the pits, hitting too many people and ruining your day and theirs, mistakes, etc., if we look at some of those stick and ball sports, all the negatives are by and large the result of a mistake. Got it. So if all the bad stuff are mistakes, it's easy for that to be owned by the individual athlete. Therefore, easy for that coach, general manager, whomever, to use those metrics, use those mistakes, have a numeric comparison from one year to the next, conduct an evaluation and have supporting numbers to make a change racing can be a lot harder in that regard we don't see everything like we do in most other sports 
I know that there's a lot of television cameras in and around the track. I know that there's a lot of things we could call video evidence, but there's still a lot that takes place that we don't see in 100% clarity. What caused what, why, when, etc. So there's some factors that are a little weird if we're just talking about the measurables, Todd. Where you'd start, and it's the obvious part, is, hey, the motor blew up at this race. Well, we kind of need to take that off the board then. Hey, someone stoved into the back of you under braking and whether knocked you out of the race or tore up the back of the car and you had to pit and get repairs, the wheel fell off. Name a number of things where you go, not your fault, not your fault, not your fault. Let's erase those from the record that we're evaluating for the season and try and come up with the purest indicator of how you have been performing. I say all that, Todd, because if you're really trying to do a numeric evaluation and justification, sorry, Driver X, we love you. Last year, you finished in this place in the championship. This year, you're a number of spots down. Here's all the numeric stuff that we've been able to put together where if you scrub away the things that weren't your fault, here are the places where we feel you should have qualified better, raced better. Here's a mistake you made or multiple mistakes you made to cause this, that, and the other. And that's why we are letting you go. Um, goodbye. That's pretty much never what happens, though. So I just wanted to share that I'm positive that throughout IndyCar history, there are indeed some teams that have gone the... I don't want to call it saber metrics, but the uh, ethanol metrics route and said, okay, here you go. Keeping you jettisoning you. And here's our vast spreadsheets full of information that have led us to this conclusion. But I would say that would be the super, super small percentage of times that has actually been the way things go. This I would say, Todd, and for those who are really wondering, knowing that we're talking about Andretti here, this is a feel. This is a non-metric thing. It's easy to point at the numbers and say, hey, you've had a really down year or two or th whatever it is. It's easy to use that from a trend standpoint to say, hey, just been going in the wrong direction for a little while. It's time to make a change. Can't argue that, right? But I would say that we've seen a declining trend therefore the change is going to happen i would actually todd say it's more of feel of looking at a driver and saying i don't know what it is that has changed within you but we don't feel like you are the same we don't feel like you're getting the best out of yourself maybe you aren't pushing as hard as you once did we're in an era right now, got into this a little bit last week, where there's no more margins, just none. The young drivers in particular have rewritten that script where seemingly everything's at 100% at all times. We're living on the edge, going over the edge, that don't ever lift, don't ever breathe, just pure, unadulterated, maximum attack at all times. Some of the veteran drivers are not, adjusting well or quickly to that 
we're seeing a little lapse or, or lack of a tenth of a mile an hour here or there or whatever it might be where we're causing some separation uh, in qualifying and race results in the championship standings. I'd say it's a little bit more of a visual, right? We use another sport again, might be like a major league baseball, that head coach looking at their pitcher on the mound. Usually they're going to yank a pitcher if they start messing up, start missing the strike zone, give up too many big hits or home runs. Those are the obvious situations. You still get some times where maybe that pitcher is not really running a foul much. Still they get pulled. Why? Uh, Coach is seeing something. You can't really put a number on, but they don't like what they're seeing. Changes made on the mound. Little bit of a, a direct comparison, I would say here, Todd, where you go, hey, if a person's winning or running in the top five, it's pretty rare when a team owner says, you're out of here, <laughs> right? That's not going to happen. But when you start seeing someone having a down year or two, you realize that a lot of money is being spent and there's not a lot of results coming back for it. And as we often see, there's a teammate in an identical car that is doing twice as good, three times as good, really outperforming in very serious ways. Outside of you need to just go win the rest of the season, live on the podium at every round, and then we will maybe change our opinion of where you're at in your career. You almost don't even, I hate to say this, Todd, but you almost don't even need to finish out the season at this point. You might put up a couple of good results. You might win once or twice. That'd be great, but the die has been cast. And so I think that is really the thing to take home here. Last little wrinkle to add. And where this is something that, again, the numbers obviously inform. Hey, you pick the number in the championship way the heck out of things. And your average qualifying position is poor. And your average finishing position is poor. Those are very informative items. Not always indicative of the driver, though, right? Hey, is there a new engineer? Uh, is there a new something? Is there a change in this person's life? You know that I've mentioned before, David Empringham, one of the great lost talents that never made it to IndyCar. And in speaking to him about that, because I saw his talent, many of us saw his talent in Formula Atlantic and Indy Lights, and said, yep, this guy should absolutely be a beast in IndyCar. It didn't happen. Speaking to him about that, one of the things he mentioned was, you know, I'm kind of glad it didn't happen at that time, well, it never happened, but at the time where things were really the hottest for him, I uh, said he was going through a terrible divorce. And he said his head just was not in a place where he feels like he would have gotten the most out of the car, the most out of the opportunity. So imagine that. Just phenomenal talent. Should be an IndyCar race winner. Don't know if he would have been a champ, but definitely a race winner whose life circumstances are such that in retrospect, he's almost happy he didn't go to IndyCar because he thinks probably would have really struggled because of all the strife at home. So 
I just mentioned that little thing because drivers going through some stuff at home that maybe nobody knows about. Uh, whatever it might be where you go, yeah, they're off their game a little bit, but we've seen them at a much higher state of performance in delivery, Todd, and therefore I think we can get them back to that and they can be a good earner. So been a down year too, but do we think we can get that person back? Well, that's where you maybe don't place too much emphasis on the numbers for others. Uh, Maybe you do. If you're in a situation with Andretti Autosport where that entry that James is driving, James Hinchcliffe is driving, and it's really questionable as to whether it's going to deliver a leader circle contract, a million-dollar contract, you could see why a business person like Michael Andretti might be looking at the big picture and saying, well, look, love all of you, want all of you to drive for us forever, but... uh, hey, we're we're making things a little tougher on the business side. So if that were to happen to any of his drivers, I think he'd be giving them a pretty hard look. It happened last year, didn't it, with Marco, with his son? Um, or am I misremembering? Regardless, I know it was a, a struggle last year as well. So keep in mind, to close here, Todd, that the majority of IndyCar team owners are ex-drivers. So, whereas in, not all, all, but, you know, a decent amount in uh, other sports where the head coach and or owners and whatnot might not have been uh, players at the highest level, here we have a case where you start looking down the list and you go, A.J. Foyt, yep, he was a race car driver. There's no question about that. Uh, Michael Andretti, absolutely. Air McLaren SP. I actually don't know if Rick Peterson was ever a race car driver, but I know Zach Brown was. I know Sam Schmidt was. Uh, within Carlin Racing, uh, I'm forgetting. I don't know if Trevor ever raced, but regardless, he's been around it forever. Chip Ganassi, former IndyCar driver. Dale Coyne, former IndyCar driver. Um, Ed Carpenter, current IndyCar driver. Michael Shank, former IndyCar, Atlantic, and you name it, driver. Bobby Rahal, former race car driver. Roger Penske, former race car driver. This is the the part that I love about the opening question you sent in, Todd. Uh, put all the numbers you want in front of a Penske, Andretti, Ganassi, or whomever, and they might glance at them for 30 seconds, some maybe for five, some not at all. And they're going to tell you that their gut tells them whether that driver needs to stay or needs to go. Uh, Connor Clinkenbeard. How you doing, Connor? Hey, MP, just read your piece on Andretti. If they do change out drivers on the 28 car and the 29 cars, do you think they will focus more on paying or paid drivers? Says, well, I love ask you. And would love to see him get another shot. Might Devlin D. Francesco, Kyle Kirkwood, or even Romain Groschamp be more likely? Don't want to go too deep into this, Connor, because I need to write about some of these things first for Racer. But you mentioned Romain Groschamp. I believe he is going to be the number one free agent on the market, provided he wants to drive for someone else. If he does, or if he open entertaining that uh yes i've heard and i'm not saying it's factual but i've heard that andretti is already and has been well interested in him so we'll have to see 
as I understand it, if we're talking about the 28 DHL car, I do believe if change happens there, it will be a like-for-like scenario, meaning a high-caliber professional being hired to drive the car like a Ryan Hunter Ray. The 29 car, I have heard, not claiming it to be factual or accurate, just, again, sharing what I have heard, that the 29 car, the one that has been, call it, for hire, right, uh, despite all of James's accolades and wins and talent, we know that that car became his through bringing full sponsorship. So, again, no, that's not a negative. It's not a criticism. Just we know that unlike the 28, which has external sp- sponsorship applied to then hire a driver, we know that a full budget has been needed to put the 29 car in play. So if indeed what I've heard that the 29, I'm sorry, the 28 will be a hiring of a driver scenario and the 29 will be a signing of a driver who brings a budget scenario, I would say that some of the kids in Indy Lights uh, that have prodigious talent and the potential to bring some money, if not a full budget, would certainly be high on a list of interest. So that wouldn't be a bad place to be in, right, Connor? If you can have, assuming Ryan Hunter Ray won't be back in the car, and we're not saying that's the case, but if we assume that a change will happen there, if the team is able to put together a short list that includes Groschon and a few others, that we would say, boy, you know, that, that's those are some good names. That's a pretty good scenario for Michael Andretti. And if he's able to amass a list of skilled drivers who can also pay for the 29 to be on track completely, that's also not a bad scenario. Uh, would also hope that the uh, good support that's been behind Linus Lundqvist would also give him a chance to look at doing a full season with an Andretti or similar. I think that kid's really special. I know that he wasn't mentioned here, but between Kyle, between him, David Malukas, uh, and Devlin, those are four drivers that I expect to be in IndyCar, if not next year, all four of them by the following year. Can't tell you whether they're part-time, full-time, or otherwise. Kyle's the only one that I'm not aware of him bringing or having lots of money to spend. So for him, I think winning a championship, having that, what is it, $1.3 million advancement prize, and then hopefully being able to build on that, uh, I th- again, unless I'm wrong, I think that might be a little bit more of the path that he needs to follow than some of the others who uh, have successful parents in business uh, who can help make those IndyCar dreams come true sooner than later. Uh, Harishi Deshpawn. How you doing, Harishi? <clears throat> hey, MP. Hope you all are doing well. We are. So regarding your recent article on Andretti Silly Season, what happens to RHR and Hinch's sponsors? Are they tied to the driver of the team? And if it's a former, is there a chance they stay with Andretti while drivers walk? I wish I knew. Again, I say this somewhat comedically. I ask for the teams to share their uh, <clears throat> contracts with me so I can read through them and get the exact answers for you. They don't always oblige. I need to drink something. My voice is trash. 
talking about things I've heard, not stating them to be fact. Heard that DHL is staying on. Uh, I believe that Hinch's sponsors are indeed what I just mentioned, his. I can't tell you if they're signed for multiple years, if whatever, whatever, whatever. I would just say that all I have heard is that Hinch returning to the team next year sounds like a big obstacle. Does that mean that those sponsors would hopefully go with him somewhere else? Couldn't tell you. I've called James, hasn't responded. Uh, so that's not uncommon. And I, again, don't hold it against him. Uh, it's, you know, some drivers pick up right away. Some pick up a little later. Some don't at all. Eh, it's kind of the normal routine. Um, haven't had a chance to ask. Uh, so until I can get a feel for where things are at with him, I wish I could tell you, but I don't know. But at least from heard what I've heard, I've heard that DHL is expected to be back. Uh, I would say that if Hinch isn't coming back, it leads you to question whether there's the money there to return or if there's just a desire on the team side to make a change. I don't know. So silly season will continue. Answers will be revealed, and I don't know when and by whom. Uh, Chuck Beck, as we start to wind down on this topic, my question ties into that Andretti story. When teams have an opening, do most look towards the future or go after a young driver? Or given the amount of veteran talent potentially on the block, is a team more likely to go with a veteran? How do teams go through this assessment when eyeing the driver market? Awesome question, Chuck. It's really, I, I hate the, uh, the generic response, but it really is down to the team. So if we're talking Dale coin racing, it's been a little while since someone hasn't helped to pay for a driver to be in the team, right? Whether it's a driver bringing a lot of the budget or a, a partner coming in, a co-entrant coming in, bringing money to help make it possible to run a driver, right? A little bit different. So when we're talking a Dale coin, uh, Dale's a very interesting person, always looking for that next talent or star that might give them uh, a leg up or breakthrough or something. Hey, he signed Romain Groschon, right? That's that's a big deal. For a Dale, he's looking to find something unique in one car. In the other, it's often a little more business, right? All right, hey, cool. Came up with something good. Uh, great got one real significant horse in the race hopefully the other develops into one but if not eh, but at least i got one bit of a different deal for an andretti autosport chuck where <sighs> big team not just on the indycar side but they do a lot of different things they are in formula e they are in imsa they are in the australian supercars championship they're in many places. The IndyCar team is the centerpiece. That's the big showy, everyone knows about it. That's the, hey, we make champions. We make Indy 500 winners. This is the core of what we do. In the same way Chip Ganassi's IndyCar program is for him, Roger Penske's IndyCar program 
is for him. So when you think about the entire empire, Michael's needs, I would say, are a bit different than a Dale coin. Because if the, uh, if the Death Star is misfiring, oh, that is not, not something that sits well from a business standpoint, from a presentation of strength and stability standpoint, reputationally. If Dale Coyne has an off-season with a driver or two, or both drivers, what happens? Absolutely nothing. Uh, he doesn't sell less Sonny's Barbecue. He d- I realize he would be unhappy, but his life does not change. His businesses are not in jeopardy. Michael Andretti's business is racing. And when he does not have things succeeding to the level that they should, there's absolutely reason, justified reason for concern for all the reasons that I mentioned. It is very much a public thing for them in needing to present strength. They're trying to sign a manufacturer to step up an IMSA, for example it's not a great time to have the uh, the main ship struggling and misfiring. So just saying, when we're looking about what a Michael Andretti needs, you can understand that, hey, a Colton Herta who started out in a satellite team, and he knew how good he was having obviously run the kid in Indy Lights and having run Pato Award, he knew what he had there. They did happen to start off one in a satellite team. The other one actually ended up uh, going because they didn't have the money for it. But he knows talent. He knows what is next generation talent. Where they're at right now, and I know that we just got into this a little bit um, with uh, Rishi and Connor and whatnot about what they might focus on for the two different cars. Business is obviously an important one. If you're having to backfill the 29 car, you know, put $6 million into a empty hole to fill that, to run somebody, that's needed. So more than anything, though, there's a need to get back to full strength. And so that's where I think, if we're talking about the potential of a change in the 28, probably going to see someone in that car, whomever it is, where you go, oh, If there's a change, I would just say expect that change to have a name attached to it where you go, yeah, okay, that's interesting, that's real, that's not a hope, that's not a "Eh, maybe you could, maybe you could. No, that's going to be someone who can hopefully deliver for years to come. On the other entry, I don't see the money being in hand that I know of for Michael to pay for the other entry to put a kid in there that he likes to then groom them and hope. Of the however many that might be able to pay for things, I think we're going to see the team being somewhat choosy and selective of, okay, uh, we might not just be signing this away to the first person who can come up with the budget. Probably going to do a lot of searching and see and make sure that we have the best possible driver in that seat. If we think about how things went down with Zach Veach, right? Three-year deal that was cut short. Michael wanting to protect the business, keep the sponsor, show the sponsor 
that there's a reason to stay and they could get more from being involved with them and spending money. What happened? Driver bringing a budget, a significant budget from what we're told, 18 to $20 million worth over that three-year span. And as things started to look a little questionable towards the end of that contract, went as far as to swap out Zach Veach, basically paid him to not drive, end that contract prematurely, and reconfigure things. So now we do have their top driver, Colton Herta, representing Zach's former sponsor, all doing very positive things for that sponsor, leading the team. Hey, we just had... We're having an earthquake right now. Fun. Sorry. Just reached to try and hold the uh, bookshelf here because there's a lot of things as I look at it that I pushed them back far enough where they shouldn't fall in my head, but you never know. Um, Let's think about the future, the best possible driver who can deliver the best performances while funding that entry. Having gone through it with Zach, not being totally happy with how that panned out on the team side, use that as a guide, Chuck, for how that might be approached. So will Michael end up closing the season looking at Kyle Kirkwood, whether he's a champion or not? Keep in mind, Connor didn't, uh, Connor, Colton didn't win the title in 2018. Uh, will he look at Kyle and say, this, I got to keep this kid no matter what? and do everything he can to find a way. I don't know. But just taking a little bit of a leap of faith here on a young driver at this stage, I don't know if that is what I would recommend uh, for the team. Let's go to uh, Daniel at Daniel SEM 2004 and close this subject here. Given the reports about the drivers, do you also think engineering side, maybe the competition group, needs an overhaul? says all four cars have been dismal this year for speed. Eh, I wouldn't go that far, Daniel. Uh, Taking a look at the average qualifying positions for all drivers, Colton is actually number one. His average qualifying position for the season to date is tops of everybody. So I would say that is uh, pretty, pretty significant. There is speed there. It's the where do you finish part. Oddly enough, Colton is at the bottom of that list. So the biggest discrepancy between average starting position and average finishing position is owned by the same Andretti Autosport driver. Now, granted... Uh, that average finishing position is 11th. So it's not terrible by any means. But if you do compare the speed demonstrated across all qualifying sessions, he's the best so far this year. Also, the thing that needs to get cleaned up, keeping in mind that not all of it is his fault by any means, getting wiped out here or there. But the, uh, the finishing position that is close to that starting position Uh, It's actually the driver with the biggest gap between the two. So that's that. Uh, There have certainly been circumstances surrounding Hinch's season that I can't put on the team, can't.
can't put on the engineer. It's been a little bit of a uh, acknowledged compromise there. Uh, to borrow my favorite line from Juan Montoya, it is what it is. Uh, there's no blame there. I would say they have genuinely been doing the best they can in a compromised situation. Uh, on the Hunter Ray side, that's been a little bit weird. Um, there have been times where you see speed from Herta, and you go, well, where's Ryan? Or you see speed from Rossi. You go, where's the speed from Ryan? There are some times where you see a lot of speed from Ryan and say, where's Herta? Where's Rossi? Uh, play that game across all three of those drivers with Herta being the one exception when it comes to qualifying. This is where I'm confused. This is where I don't fully understand things. Insofar, Daniel, that there have been too many sessions practice primarily, but also in the races as well, where things have been a little bit off for Colton where they weren't last year. That's strange. That shouldn't happen. Same for Alexander. Same for Ryan. Very peaky, streaky, something E. The opposite of consistency. E. <laughs> Sorry. The opposite of what you need in terms of consistent results. And so, Again, it's easy to go back to the metrics part and say, well, we're just going to look at race results, see how people are doing. You go, oh, boy, terrible year. Should we make a change? Well, Colton's seventh. He's got a win. He's got one other podium, a bunch of not great finishes. Again, not all of them his fault by any stretch of the imagination. Rossi, kind of sort of the king of the I'm either finishing in a decent position or the cartoon anvil is just destroying me, right? Uh, Where things have been weird for Alexander is if he isn't on the podium, he's usually there, thereabouts when he's in the top 10. And if he's not in the top 10, it's usually because something went drastically wrong. Rarely would I say, you know, of his making, bad luck, whatever. This has been a weird thing where you go, hey, man, uh, you've had a lot of misfortune this year. But there's also been this, there's this weird boomer bust factor. And when things boom, they're not that second, third, fourth, fifth. I think he's got like three seventh place finishes this year and like an eighth and a ninth. Roughly half of the finishes are in the top 10, but the high end not super competitive. It's been a weird year, right? With yellows and cautions and dramas and yellows and cautions are the same thing. So that was redundant, but it's been a bit of a weird year of people trying a lot of different things with strategery and fuel saving and it's been a weird year. Even so, uh, the kind of breaking through that yeah, high top 10 finishing thing. It's been strange. And so uh, drop Rossi into Pelot's car, Dixon's car, Erickson's car, etc. Drop him into a Ward's car, etc. New Garden's car. Hell, drop him into Arena's VK's car. 
Do we think the guy's top five in the championship? Yes. End of statement. Uh, he could be leading the darn thing, right? Just weird. So he, if anything, is my kind of canary in the coal mine. I look at Hunter Ray. He's had a terrible year. Uh, terrible year. And he has one top 10. It's 10th. Everything else. He's been 10th or worse at every race. A lot of times it hasn't been him. Sometimes it has, or strategy's been off, or whatever else, cartoon anvils, you name it. <sighs> These two guys should be perennial top 10, and not ninth and 10th, but deeper into the top 10. So when they aren't, and you look at the kind of consistency that is lacking, it just tells me that, like last year, Andretti Autosport has gotten something wrong, by and large. And unlike last year, where Colton Herta was the outlier and seemingly impervious to the things that the rest of the team was not getting right, there have been a couple of events for sure where you go, yeah, wow, I don't know what happened there. Where were you? Uh, and again, it could be a slow pit stop. It could be wrong tire choice. It could be a couple of different things. But even Herta is looking somewhat mortal this year, and that's a strange thing. So when drivers like Herta, Rossi, and Hunter Ray look mortal, there's a bigger thing to question. Last thing to close on this, the descriptions that I've heard of the mood within the team are dark heavy just to the point that some have sent in in recent weeks about does there need to be a change driver side or more daniel you just asked the same thing again from the outside the answer looks like yes because while the team rallied hard towards the end of last year and rossi was kicking ass to close the season, got all the way up to ninth in the standings, right? I mean, he was a guy who had a brutal start to the year in particular, but did his usual drive like a madman, put up serious results, and overcame a lot of things, right? You couldn't get the guy off the podium. Uh, what, mid both mid-Ohio's, uh, he was on the podium. Uh, what, going back to Indy on the road course, I think, both races there too. Like, you go, wow, okay, uh, got it back. Cool. It's gone somewhere. And there's no avoiding it. So if you think about Hunter Ray to close last season too, I don't I think he had one podium at Mid-Ohio, but like two top fives. Uh, if I recall, IMS Road Course wasn't all that friendly to him, but I think he had another top five to close the season. Just, again, the two guys who are stuck, deep, you know, 13th and 15th in the championship, these people were earning massively to close last season. The fact that they're kind of nowhere this year, I don't know where the changes start. I don't know if it's a culture change. I don't know if it's a technical change. I don't know if it's both. But I do know that you can now point to a unquestionable trend that two years in a row there's been some 
big disappointments in even the golden child from last year in Herda, who was seemingly able to escape all the bad stuff. Even he is somewhat involved in that, and at more than 100 points out from the championship lead, I'm not saying he can't win and climb his way to get back into the title chase, but some pretty drastic things are going to have to happen here for that to be possible. Everyone else in the Andretti roster, it's done. It's over. Not even a chance. Rossi's 170-ish points out. Hunter Ray's more than 200 points out. Again, there's desperation here for Herta, for the team. If he can start winning and just grabbing lots and lots of points, maybe he can get back in the title conversation. It's not impossible. It's going to be a bit of a stretch, though. At least they had a contender last year. I would fall in line with you here, Daniel, and say I'll be very surprised that if some of the friends that I have there and folks that I've known forever or respected forever, I'll be surprised if some aren't working for other teams when the 2022 season begins. All right. I think we've covered off all the silly season stuff we can right there. So let's move to the Flash 947 from Reddit. Hey, Marshall, just started listening to the podcast. I wish I started sooner. Well, that's really kind of you to say. I think it's a silly notion, but it's really kind of you to say. Kidding aside, really appreciate uh, you sending in a question and listening. Following his impressive performance as a super sub, what do you think of the chances we'll see Oliver Askew on the grid next year? And you touched on it slightly when talking about Bourdais, but when do you think we'll start to see some of the older drivers consider retirement from racing in the series full-time? Funnily enough, uh, and I guess there would have been no reason to know this, I got a couple minutes into the podcast and then got a call from uh, an old friend who runs a very large racing team and maybe the series and one of our favorite motor racing circuits. And we were talking about that just a little bit. And I would say on the latter part first, we have IMSA. And a important development for them coming in 2023, the same year as IndyCar, with uh, their new engine formula here, the hybrid engine formula. IMSA's going hybrid prototype racing in 23, and there's been a massive response to it so far. Uh, we have four manufacturers confirmed. There's a fifth, that being Cadillac, uh, that will confirm at some point in time here, but it's a done deal. So there's five. Heard there could be a sixth to start this new formula in 23. And we would expect a seventh, at minimum a seventh, to get involved for by the time we get to 2024. So that's five-ish guaranteed to start in 23, maybe six. Following year, we expect it to be up to seven. Huge. Factories. Full factory racing. I think... What we are going to see is some of the elder statesmen, and hopefully if we have some women racing back in the series, veteran elder stateswomen, I think we're going to see a non-coincidental alignment here, the Flash 947, that in 2023, I think we're going to see some of our 40-plus full-timers in IndyCar likely moving either full-time 
or significantly headed towards full-time in IMSA in the LMDH formula, which I'm also hearing rumors that nomenclature might change to something less clunky. LMDH, yeah, that's that's not a winner. But there's going to be a need, a significant need, for veteran talent, even some young talent, to fill out all of the factory IMSA LMDH prototype uh, entries. There's going to be serious customer programs for some of those manufacturers. So where there might be a two-car Porsche factory team, could there be two others? being entered, two other cars being entered by another team, or maybe one each from two teams. Could it be more? What about Audi? What about this? What about that? I think the numbers are going to be very favorable when it comes to some of the IndyCar drivers, maybe on the cusp of trying something new and different, saying, hey, realize this new IndyCar formula is here. That's cool. Not saying I want to go away from it, but uh, I'm... Pretty much at the end of my IndyCar career. Do I try and stick around for another year or two at whatever the age, 40, 42, 44? Again, we're talking two years from now. Or do I go with this manufacturer that has just put a two-year, three-year, however many-year contract in front of me? Not going to pay as much probably as IndyCar, but this is the perfect timing to transition into the next chapter, maybe the final chapter of their careers. Is that a Bourdais by then? I don't know. I mean, I don't ever want to not see him in IndyCar, but I would expect Seb to be in high demand. Um, work down the list. Pagano is obviously uh, someone who we don't know how long his IndyCar career is going to be. Perfect guy is a former uh, ALMS champion, prototype champ, to look at that here in two years' time. Uh, Takuma Sato, right? Uh, how much longer is he going to continue in IndyCar? Does he have an interest in a full-time sports car career? Was that something Acura slash Honda would want to get behind? Don't know, but, you know, if you wind the clock forward two years from now, it's going to be 46. Obviously, it's not an impossible age. Just saying full-time, that would be something rather unique. Uh, Hunter Ray comes to mind, right? Uh, could see him being full-time in sports cars by then at 42, 43 um, you you just start to look through the list and you go, yeah, I can see how that would make sense. So do we, again, I don't know what Scott Dixon's planning. I don't know how much longer he wants to be an IndyCar full-time, but you know, he'll be 42 when LMDH gets here. So could we see some of the bigger names, established names, Indy 500 winners, champions or there, thereabouts, right? Bourdais. Dixon, Pagano, Sato. Uh, does Will Power want to do sporty cars? I don't know, but could there be something there? Absolutely. Elio, who knows? Does he want to try and do some more of that? I don't know. Um, Orde, Hunter, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that might be a bit of an answer. I think that might just be nature handling uh, that situation to some degree. So great question on that side. Odds about Oliver <sighs> on talent. There's no question. He should be in a seat full time next year. Would I think he'd be a candidate for, uh, the 28 car. If there is change there, I would, 
Would I think the team would have him and a handful of other drivers do some additional testing? I don't know if I want to call it a shootout, but take another look, a harder look. I know he tested for them once earlier this year, but maybe a little bit of a more hardcore evaluation, possibly. I don't know how many other teams would be in a position to hire Oliver for next year. But I would say of all that come to mind, Andretti might be top of the list. So if it's not there, obviously I'd hope it's somewhere else because that kid's that good, but I don't know where else it might be. Um, and I'm not saying that I can't think of other places. I'm just talking realistic uh, where else he might end up in a paid seat. Uh, why don't we go to Michael Bergelis Jr., I think. At MJBJR731 from Twitter. It says, just started listening to the podcast show and now subscribe to it on Spotify. Yes! Thanks, Michael. It says, question, how many sets of tires does each IndyCar team get for race day? Nobody ever mentions it. Example, NASCAR determines every week how many sets each team gets before the race. Well, that is an awesome question, Michael. So, yeah, indeed... We do things a little bit different here. Um, what happens is instead of saying on race day, and I'm ignorant about NASCAR and this stuff, so I apologize if I'm saying dumb things, uh, but if you listen, you know I'm dumb, so that's okay. Um, we know that, as you have shared, in NASCAR there is a declaration on race day as to how many can be had. So again, I'm taking that on, on face value. If it's wrong, I apologize. IndyCar, their partner in Firestone do things very different capacity. You get a set number of sets for the weekend, and it's up to you how to use them. So I like that strategery, Michael, because it's, leaves it to the team to improvise a little bit. Admittedly, pretty much everyone does the same thing, but there are some little differences here and there. So if we go to the last race, for example, there were seven sets. And this does not include the, uh, the extra set for rookies that they get to use in the first session and then return, but there are seven sets of the primary tires. Those are just standard sidewalls. There are four sets that they made available for Road America with the uh, the alternate, tend to be the faster. Uh, those have a red stripe around them. And then uh, rain tires, I'm forgetting exactly how many, but uh, an ample number of sets of rain tires should it rain. So where there's just necessary management of tire resources here is, hey, okay, cool. Got 11 sets to work with. We... Again, depending on the event, we get two practice sessions, uh, qualifying, warm-up maybe, and then the race, or is it one practice session that tends to be longer? Who knows? If we're talking road and street courses, which we are since we're going into mid-Ohio coming out of Road America, what you tend to get is teams that spend the vast majority of their time in practice on the primary tires, you'll often see towards the end of the whatever the final practice session number is before qualifying. You'll see teams in the last, again, it changes a little bit, 10, 15 minutes, 
switch over to running the alternate red banded tires and performing qualifying simulations. Run the car on low fuel. We'll make some adaptations to the aerodynamics, whether it's trying to take downforce out, put it in, whatever they decide to do, but try and simulate the car's behavior on these red-banded alternate tires prior to qualifying. They tend to do some very different things handling-wise, and so the teams try and get a glimpse of that by running the tires that admittedly they wish they could just run them in qualifying uh, and save them and not have to burn up uh, or at least consume some of the uh, the quality and the goodness of that set of reds in the final pra- or in the, the last practice session before qualifying but they need it by and large to get a feel for the car how it's performing differently than on the primary tires so they know what adjustments to make to really try and nail things in qualifying. Since IndyCar does this knockout qualifying process, you don't get a lot of time. And they're pretty sticky about you making serious changes, chassis setup changes to the car. So that's why teams get a little bit of a uh, sneak peek, if you want to call it that, Michael, in that late in that practice session by doing qualifying simulation run or two, maybe three, who knows, They're really trying to study up before that big qualifying test. Apply those changes to the car going in to qualifying and will then use, it really depends. Each team tends to go about things in a similar capacity, but again, they will change. They'll go out and do the first six minutes or so of that opening 10-minute session on the primaries, then switch over to the reds to put in a fast as possible lap time to get them into the top six of their group to transfer into the fast 12. And we'll repeat that process of going with the primaries, then to the alternates again. Once the fast 12 takes place, then again in the fast six. Sometimes you'll see a team stray a little bit and put a second new set of reds on the car to try and get through if they feel like they're marginal on speed really try and throw brand new reds at it again to try and put up a better lap time to make sure they transfer through Um, then you're a little bit compromised in the race if the, the reds happen to be the hot ticket where you've burned up too much of them in practice and qualifying and you're gonna have to spend the majority of the time on the primaries in the race. So this is a part that I like. Hey, we're giving you a weekend outlook. This is how many you got. And you use them as you choose. In theory, if there was an insane team, they could try and run every single set in the first practice session. Use them all up and then be trash for the rest of the weekend. I have no idea why no one would do that. I'm just sharing that because they have the freedom to do so. So yeah, that's... uh. That's the practice. Um, let them know ahead of time, and then you got to do some good old strategery. Uh, windy car. All right, asked you to throw this one back in. Um, mentioned that Kara Adams, the uh, the head of race engineering and tires at Firestone, said three car races in a row with women engineers on winning teams. Can you tell us who they are, some of the background, human interest story, telling about them? 
Maybe Kara could join you. You know, I think for that part, I think that might be the the perfect approach. Because uh, A, Kara's just a ball of awesomeness. It's been a little while since I've had her on the show. I don't know why, just because I'm dumb. But maybe we'll spend some time doing some storytelling and celebration there. Uh, I know that I wrote a story about the uh, the women, or in my, what, post-Detroit uh, cool-down lap column, wrote about two of the women engineers there who were first-time winners, plus the awesome Kate Gunlack, who won again with Pato. Maybe we can do a little bit of uh, background there. I know that in that uh, post-Detroit cool-down, there was some storytelling about some of their backgrounds and what uh, some of them came from, so... I uh, don't necessarily want to just rehash all that here, but save some of this for Kara. She's really the, the band leader of the uh, women engineers in IndyCar. And, yeah, so we'll, we'll save that for the chief. Look forward to that for sure, and I'll get out that invite here uh, in the next couple of weeks for sure. The part that I wanted to uh, get through that you asked about said, uh, maybe you could zoom out a little bit for some of us who are still listening. Uh chief engineers, assistant engineers, engineers that kind of hover over all things and Ganassi or maybe Penske or others. Are they embedded with one driver? Can you break it down? Tell us about the different engineering disciplines. You bet. So traditional structure to consider here in IndyCar has two engineers attached to each entry. And I that can evolve a little bit. Obviously, teams can add more, try and do with less. Rarely do you see them trying to do with less, but the generic setup on each team is a race engineer. That is the head coach of performance. That is, in some teams or nomenclature, you'll see them referred to as chief race engineer, head race engineer. I just say the race engineer. I don't see, you know, there's no, there's no one close to what that person does. Therefore, I don't feel the need to add chief, lead, head, whatever. The race engineer. That is the boss of the car from an engineering standpoint. That person communicates directly with the driver. The driver and that race engineer could be some input from some other places, but primarily it's those two people talking about the car, making decisions on what changes are applied to it, whether it's suspension settings, whether it's aerodynamic settings, variety of other settings we could talk about, but just in a very basic sense, the race engineer is the boss of the car from an engineering standpoint hierarchical hierarchically i don't know which one is the correct one and i'm supposed to so i apologize but i'm admitting my dumb not dumbosity race engineer is also you could say above the uh crew chief slash chief mechanic it's one and the same thing the chief mechanic doesn't report to the engineer in terms of that is their boss. That's not tr- that's not the case. They'll report to a team manager. But if we're talking about linked relationships, and I just want to cover off on race engineer, then I'll move to the other ones. Race engineer dictates the changes to the car. 
the chief mechanic carries out those changes or instructs his or her mechanics to make those changes. We talk about looking into my past as both a mechanic receiving setup sheets from the engineer or crew chief, been there, applied those settings, and done that. Also have been the race engineer coming up with the setup sheet to start the weekend after each session, you name it, walk out of the trailer with that printout in hand. I realize today some of that may be done digitally, so showing my age a little bit, but uh, walk out of the transporter and hand that setup sheet to the crew chief. And on it, it will have usually, again, stylistically, each team's a little different, but uh, you know, there's a million little things and settings on the car. It's pretty much standard form to highlight the changes on the sheet so you're not making your chief mechanic's eyes go into the rolling into the back of their head. But So that's a bit of the link there. Uh, when you see the mechanics on pit lane take off the shock cover and make a damper change or make a this or make a that, just know that that has happened because the race engineer has said, please make two clicks to this. Please go up one flat of that. And then things get put back in place. So that's the race engineer. Really, that person is commanding a lot of things related to the car. They will have an assistant engineer. So that's the other part of the common dynamic. Race engineer, assistant engineer. Well, the assistant engineer does exactly what the name implies. Responsibilities tend to get parsed out a bit. So back in the day, the assistant engineer, and I used to do a lot of assistant engineering in IndyCar and other places too, uh, would have been referred to as the DAG, the Data Acquisition Geek. This is back in a time where computers were considered the domain of geeks, whereas like today, no one would understand that because computers are part of everyone's lives, even if it's the little thing you carry in your pocket that is a computer and also a phone. So assistant engineer tends to be the person that looks after data acquisition on the car, the telemetry coming back, obviously monitoring that information, sharing that information with the race engineer if needed, also, not uncommon for that person to look after fuel consumption, fuel strategy, uh, and inform the race engineer. Sometimes race engineers like to do that on their own. The assistant part of this is just the unique aspect because some race engineers just want to engineer the car and leave the rest of the, quote, nonsense to the assistant. Look, computers, fuel radios maybe like just look all i want to do is make the car go fast and that's what i'm going to focus on you get the rest some others not so much hey i want to pull this over i'm going to hold on to this you do these things over here but i'm going to hold on to this portion of things that i want to monitor as well Uh, so again the assistant part is defined by the race engineer you spin that out and there are some other engineering roles you can have a performance engineer and kate gundlach for example does that at air mclaren sp with pato awards 
that's can be another again individually defined uniquely defined thing an assistant engineer might be more of a tender of systems look after it all make sure it's all running keep an eye on things and such going to raise my hand you know going to alert folks if there's something that's standing out that needs attention but by and large i'm a a i am not necessarily an analyst I'm more of an IT person. Performance engineer can definitely be more strictly defined as that data analyst, that person who is looking specifically at the data. It's a little bit beyond the data too. Not saying there isn't, but looking at the numbers and information that is happening, and I am going to through my own intuitiveness plus software plus some other cool tools as well, I'm going to deduce and inform the race engineer on the performance side of what is happening. So the changes that you just made, awesome. You went up on this and down on that. Well, I'm telling you that by comparison to the run before, these are the areas where we have modified the performance of the vehicle. You have asked the driver to do something different. Could be brake later, could be brake earlier, could be relieving pressure more here, doing blah, 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 more steering input, less steering input. I am the person who is truly cooking all this up and using this to deliver as a way to quantify what we're doing positively or negatively and to inform all of those who can benefit from that. Uh, you can get into some systems engineering of folks who really do specialize and cater to the specific systems in the vehicle that get used. Damper engineer, that's again something where depending on resources of a team to wind down here, you could have the race engineer who also happens to be a damper specialist Used to be a thing a while ago. Wasn't uncommon. Not so common today to see the race engineer getting their hands dirty and oily uh, in that regard. Could be something where the assistant engineer looks after that side. Uh, also does the uh, the damper builds and whatnot. There could be a dedicated person who does nothing but the damper engineering and builds and modifications and applies their expertise there. So it's a lot of possibilities. Uh, then you have your engine technician slash engine engineer who's overlooking everything that has to do with things being hot or cold or pressurized or sparky or explodey or, or turboy or you name it. So, yeah, the interesting part is I can't say it's exclusive to every team, or I shouldn't say exclusive, common with every team. But if you see a person on a timing stand and they have a laptop in front of them, it's a strong possibility that they have engineer attached to their title. Not always the case. Could have the strategist looking at their information. Could have some others looking at things that wouldn't be engineering related. But yeah, interesting windy car. There's a lot of variations uh they all feed back to the same 
person being the race engineer. It's a lot of opportunities too, for those who like motor racing, have a little bit of geek in them, uh, engineering, understanding physics and whatnot, or just straight up, Hey, I'm an it person. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities here, a lot of opportunities to get into this side. So hopefully folks do. Uh, Daniel Angleton says, Hey, MP, any updates as to whether we will see Preda Autosport at any more races this season? Uh, when I was speaking with a particular captain uh, not too long ago, asked that question, and he didn't have an answer because I don't think it was so much his to answer. Uh, I would assume his team will apply support if and when uh, the team is ready to go again. I shouldn't say if. I expect them to go again. Just, you know, we haven't had any official we're going, we're doing this, that, and the other. I know that there's high ambition to do so, but I would expect Roger's team to be available to do that. But as he said, you know, a great start, great everything. It's now up to Beth to hopefully find the money to keep doing some more. Uh, Roa Nichardson, or Noah Richardson, or Itchard Rich and Noah. Uh, hey, says, with Ernie Francis Jr. doing well in SRX, winning his first uh, Formula 4 event at Mid-Ohio this past weekend, will we see him in the road to Indy or even IndyCar in the near future? Well, I sure hope so. And I phrase it that way <laughs> because he's brand new to open-wheel racing. I've uh, been a fan of Ernie's for quite a while. Super talented. Badass and Trans Am machinery. He's done, what, three, four weekends so far? Uh, started off pretty far off. Um, has gotten closer for sure. Did win around last weekend, so that was awesome. Couple things here just to throw in, right? Always want to deal with reality. Uh, Ernie Francis, Jr., by the way, African-American, um, would hope that he would get a look, uh, provided he shows that he has the talent worthy of deserving a look in open wheel. We know that in sports cars, there's no reason. He should absolutely be driving for bigger team or for, he should be an IMSA, period. Love him in Trans Am, but he should be an IMSA driving with a serious team. But on the road to Indy side, i just back things up a little bit and say, really thankful of Tony Perella, who uh, is behind... Trans Am uh, running, basically taking over the SCCA Pro Racing Division's open wheel stuff and is running that. Has his uh, SVRA Vintage Series that he runs. He's doing great stuff. He's decided to get behind and support Ernie to uh, hopefully see if he can make it in open wheel. And so without Tony, this isn't happening. Keep in mind that Tony is behind Formula Regional Americas slash Formula 4 slash Formula 3 has nothing to do with Road to Indy. He is Pepsi to their Coca-Cola. So where I obviously hope that Ernie continues to learn more and demonstrate more skills and win more races this year, him doing well there doesn't automatically equate to him going to the Road to Indy. Someone's got to pay for it. So there's that. There's the other thing too here, which we just have to acknowledge, Awesome for him to win. Awesome for him to be fast. 
there are some young talents in Formula 4 this year where you go, hey, this kid looks like they could be someone that develops and is worthy of getting into USF 2000 on the road to Indy to be, you know, hopefully see where they can go. I would struggle to paint the opposition that Ernie just beat as, oh my goodness, get this kid straight into an Indy car. A lot of learning to do against much stiffer opposition. I'd say once we get there, hopefully we get there. If we can get him into USF 2000, Indy Pro, whatever, we'd have a better feel. But he is so early into his open wheel education here. I don't want to rush things. He's what, like 23, 24? Still a kid, right? Still young, but uh, boy, absolutely starting at the bottom. Like if you think Jimmy Johnson has a big thing, big educational curve to overcome, oh, Ernie has a whole heck of a bunch. So I actually hope a little bit of the opposite here. I hope that his win doesn't change anyone's outlook of like, oh my goodness, got to go now. He's there, he's ready, or can be. No, He's not, but I think he has the talent to do some pretty special stuff. Whether that gets him up the ladder, that beautiful Cooper Tire shod road to Indy ladder, and gets him to IndyCar, he's going to hopefully tell us that. I just don't want us to get too far ahead of him, ahead of that. Uh, I'm going to mash the old throttle here and get through as many as I can, uh, and then going to say farewell. And uh, look forward to speaking to you again with Romain Groschamp here uh, in a couple days. Daniel Ingleton, MP, does Alex Plow already have a contract with Ganassi for next year? If not, do you imagine it would be a formality that a deal will be agreed over a longer-term period? Um, he is not available, and that is awesome. I don't know what he's getting paid. I hope it's a good amount. My only fear for him, just as a friend guy who's a new member i forgot to mention we have our first indycar driver as a member of the Day listener group right how silly he actually joined like really joined uh and i think is going to be helping to lead a uh, Day meetup at mid ohio maybe hopefully either a group photo or maybe take folks on a garage tour or something their hopes no promises but for those of you who don't know uh there's a silly group of listeners that I love, uh, the Day, as they're called. Uh, they've named themselves after my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day. So that's where Day comes from. It's just a little play on words. Maybe not a great one, but anyways. Uh, Day, they're just a group of listeners who kind of got together on their own, and they I'm not a part of it. They've asked if I wanted to join. I said, no, that's all about you guys. You don't need dad in there messing things up. Um and they just have fun. And what's cool is a lot of them have become friends, real friends, um, who bench race, talk about life, the universe, and everything, and appear to have a really good time together. So I just mentioned this, and thank you, Daniel. If I was smarter, I'd mention this at the open of each show. Uh, if it's something you want to join, because it's actually a little bit of a private thing, not private like bad or who is, oh, boy, this is it's not a... a racing podcast only fans thing but uh they just it's more of like a private twitter thing that they all uh hop on to and do and just enjoy each other's company so if that's something any of you want to participate in 
uh, drop me a note uh, either on Twitter, the MP Podcast Facebook page, my uh, use my email address if you want, marshall at marshallpruitt.com, and I'll get you connected. Uh, DM me through Instagram or whatever else. Get you taken care of. Uh, there are a couple of kooky folks, Ryan Terpstra, uh, who else? John Wojnar comes to mind, Matt Philpot, John Hollinger, who else? Uh, James Bethay, and on and on. There's a lot of wacky, wacky fun folks who uh, uh, can jump you in. Is it a gang? Hope it's not a gang. Anyways, uh, Alex Pillow's part of the Prue Day, which is funny as heck. Uh, yeah, he's not available gladly my only fear is that i hope whatever he signed to start with ganassi i hope that there's some sort of kicker or sweetener or something because he's leading the championship he's won two races for the team the team's won four races this year he's won two of them um i i hope that he's being made more than whole because boy is he out performed what you might think would be a uh, first-year contract, rookie contract like you see sometimes in other sports where someone comes in during that, call it rookie contract period, they go, wait a minute, I'm getting paid peanuts, but I am delivering more than some of the best in the sport. Uh, We need to redo the deal. So, again, I have no knowledge about his contract. I just assume that it was a sweetheart deal for Chip. So uh, I'm sure if I'm wrong, I'll get a nasty call from Chip. Um, or maybe just an S call from chip about nothing or something else. Who knows? Uh, Daniel, while we're here, uh, continues says, has Romain Groschon's performance level and speed in adapting to IndyCar surprised you at all. Do you think his and Marcus Erickson's achievement have made the series more attractive to European drivers on the F1 path? I do because I'm not mentioning names, but I'm aware of another one of those type of drivers who, I am aware is very interested in coming over here as a direct result of seeing what Romain could do driving for one of the smaller teams in his first season. And he's been a badass. and Marcus as well, breaking through. So yes, I think there's, it's not just, I think yes, Daniel, for sure. Uh, it's real. It's happening. Um, if you're an F1 fan, it's awesome. If not, meh, um, I hope this would happen more. Little quick thing here. <clears throat> Talking about silly season. Hey, could there be some openings at Andretti? Could there be uh, another car here? Could this team be looking for someone new? Talking about paying uh, someone to drive type opportunities. Uh, it's a lot of rearranging the deck chairs. There's a couple, call it outsiders. could say, hey, you're Oliver Askew. Yeah, that kid should. Definitely be under consideration. Spencer Piggott, for sure. Uh, I know that I've, I've raved about uh, the, the potential that, contain, that is contained within R.C. Enerson. Not even getting into the, the road to Indy, Indy Lights drivers yet because, you know, they'll be added to that mix. But if I'm just talking about, hey, we're an IndyCar team, we're pretty good, got a seat, maybe two, and we're looking to pay at least one driver for one of them, you know, what's the pool of available proven non-risk or maybe you're not all the way there, but we think you're going to be pretty darn good type drivers. It's not deep. It's really not that deep. Uh, If a high quality driver doesn't get picked up with a new contract, would they then be among the, the leading silly circle 
Silly circle? What is wrong with me? Silly season drivers? Sure. Assuming one or more of them don't get picked up, go to sports cars or maybe go to another team, but maybe call it a, a lesser team, right? One that hasn't performed as high as the one they're leaving. Yeah, there could be a couple names, but again, it's a little bit of rearranging deck chairs. Not a lot of like, all right, here's a Romain Groschon, right? He's here, thankfully. But I do believe, that's just where I wanted to take this uh, quickly to uh, close, Daniel. I think we might see a slightly more adventurous approach. Like, okay, we could go to that guy. Uh, We could go to him. We could go to her. Got a pretty good feeling what we're going to get. Might not be bad. Might be really good. But, hmm, in some situations, in some teams where they might have a really solid foundation and might be open to a little bit of adventurous hiring, I think you might see some Formula One looks, uh, some FIWEC looks, some interesting considerations outside of the norm because there's just not that deep of a new, 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 hey, wow, uh, I bet you could do something for us type pool of, of drivers sitting out there right now. Greg Liversedge, how you doing, Greg? Could Penske give another season to Simon Pagano to fill the gap year before the Porsche IMSA program kicks off? Uh, for those who don't know, Roger Penske and Porsche coming back together Roger will be running the global, not just IMSA, but also WEC, Porsche factory LMDH program. Um, 23, though. We know that Simon's out of contract at the end of the year. So his question, do you think Penske might keep him for another year uh, before shifting him over to Porsche in 2023? Uh, He says, it seems most years one driver is the key to the silly season. Is that driver simon he says if he leaves could we see a seat open up at air mclaren sp uh if he stays at penske is there less movement across the board great question um something that i asked roger about didn't get too much in the way of specifics but i'll save that for my client obviously need to share that first there my two cents would be this and well if i am the person making the decision and this is probably not a decision that simon would like i would say simon this is the last year of you driving for us in indycar want to extend a new contract to you for multiple years You will be driving at the Indy 500 for us. We'll do the Indy Grand Prix beforehand because Simon's a rhythm guy. He's going to want to warm up. He's not going to want to come in cold. The reason I say this is not because he's doing a bad job in IndyCar, not by any stretch of the imagination. But having spoken with Pascal's or Linden, most of you shouldn't know who that is, but having spoken with Porsche Motorsport boss, Pascal Verlinden, he's the the factory motorsport boss, interviewed Pascal on Friday, uh, just ahead of the uh, Watkins Glen IMSA race. Topic of timing. When are you going to get out with this new LMDH car? Things don't start racing till 
January of 23, uh, when do you think they're confident they're going to get out by the end of the year sometime around Christmas? I know for a fact they're planning to test like mad over here, January, February, March, you name it. Knowing how good Simon is, knowing how special Simon is in sports cars, prototype specifically, this is all assuming that Porsche buys in. The idea of having Simon using next year to develop the living poop out of that Porsche LMDH so that it is the sharpest and deadliest of weapons once January of 2023 arrives, that is the exact thing I would be trying to sell him on. I know that at, what, 36 years old, 37, it's probably the last thing he's going to want to hear. I know he's currently sitting fifth in the championship, right? It's not as if he's significantly declined. I don't know if I really consider him a championship threat anymore, but hey, whatever. Um, that's what I'm suggesting because if I'm talking big picture and long term, Simon being the anchor of development for that car, uh, running across a lot of American tracks, which he knows, and he knows from driving prototypes, wickedly fast prototypes, winning in them, winning championships in them. That's my strongest play. There's no one else within team Penske's driver roster in any of the series that they're in, that comes close. Not at all. It's Simon, period. So that's what I am suggesting. Will he want to? I don't know. Let's think about Elio Castroneves. He did not want to stop driving Indy cars. When RP decided it was time for him to stop and to move over to sports cars, uh, he's now fought to come back. Did okay recently from what I've heard in his open wheel return. But this is a guy at 46 years old who, what was he, 42, 43? Whatever age he was when Roger said it's time to move from IndyCar to sports cars. I mean, it, it was a sad moment in his career. He did not want it. Ended up panning out well, winning a championship, his one and only big professional championship, but few years older than Simon. Um, just I mean, reason I'm spending an extra minute or two or whatever on this is just because, Greg, if I am Simon's manager, it's what I'm suggesting that he goes forward with, provided that's what Roger's offering, right? I don't know. I'm just saying I would think Roger would be going down this path because he knows how special of a driver he has there uh, to this Porsche effort that I expect to go for a number of years and be a really big deal. Uh, racing at Le Mans as well. Simon has a lot of experience racing at Le Mans and big prototypes. Like there's every single box you could ask for to be ticked by a driver. Simon does that. Plus he's among the world's elite technical engineering feedback drivers, uh, period. So every, he's a dream scenario to take out of IndyCar and drop into this big new Porsche prototype program. Um, if that's not something Penske decides they want to do, 
a bridge year, as you mentioned, 22 in IndyCar, and then moving him over there as a race car driver in 23 makes a ton of sense. Does he want to? I don't know. Uh, some of you know that the last time I tried asking Simon about contracts and this, that, and the other, uh, earmuffs, he was really shitty about it, but whatever. Um, I doubt he would answer it now. If I asked him, I might get an even worse response, but that's okay. I'm a big boy. I can tell you this. He's doing well in the standings right now. Finishing third at Indy propelled him higher. He's doing well to hold on to where he's at. I know that Road America didn't have a great finish position for him, but he's in a very competitive position in the standings. I don't know if that's going to remain the the case, but we'll see. If Roger, by chance, says you're not driving IndyCars for me next year or you're not driving for me at all, who knows? But if the decision comes down that Simon is not driving for Roger in IndyCar next year and Simon has the ability to go wherever he wants, I would just say that if we're talking a year ago, two years ago, I think the demand would have been rather exceptional. Right now, I don't know how many teams are looking at him in a season-long, full-time capacity and saying championship. Um, Win after win after win after win. I think every team would look at him and say, man, we need you for the Indy 500. Uh, We might use you in select places, but that we fear you, you are feared, and holy cow, you're chasing people down and dominating and winning like mad. I just fear for my old pal Simon, who yells at me every now and then. I yell at him too, but hey, that's what people do. Um, I just fear that the luster that he had coming out of 2019, three wins, Indy 500 being the crown jewel, falling back a bit last year. I know that he won a race, know that he had a couple podiums. Again, not belittling any of that, but just saying from the height of 2019, last year was a bit of a drop-off. I know that he won, what, Iowa? I think the first round at Iowa. Um I don't know if I've seen him really in a position to win since then. I understand a lot of folks are of the conviction that if the Indy 500 went one more lap, he would have won. I'm not necessarily in that group, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm just talking what's going in to entice teams to give you a lot of money to drive for them for the full season. Could a Aero McLaren SP have an interest. Yeah, I think that'd be a smart move on their part. He's going to be rock solid for them. I don't know if he's going to win for them, but I know he's going to be rock solid for them. Would an Andretti Autosport look at him? I don't know. I really don't. Um, It's just been strange to see someone that was once so heavily feared and to hear feedback from folks saying, yeah, we, I know we always got to keep an account of him, but I don't know if we have to game plan for getting past him to win. So 
if you're lobbying to stay an IndyCar driver, he's in an awesome position now with, what, seven races left, seven opportunities to win. Uh, he could win them all. He could win one. He could do a variety of things. But that sharp tooth fear, Simon Pagano, that's the guy that I hope we see return because that's the guy who would either get picked up by Roger to stay in IndyCar or have others saying that you got to come do this for us. <laughs> um, or who knows? But yeah, if I got to call the, uh, call the shots, it'd be uh, developing a sports car next year, which is probably the last thing he probably wants to do right now. Uh, Dan, uh, at Texan Ombre on Twitter, says, How has Carlin managed to stay in the leader circle despite missing the Indy GP? Are the full-time entries required to bring a note from their parents if they have to miss a race? Indeed they do, Dan. I love that you know about the uh, the note from mom and dad. Uh, you know, until Max Jilton finished 10th at Road America, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't even close. But now he has shortened the deficit to the next-to-last place uh, full-time entry in the leader circle. And, yeah. I'm telling you, we might have a little bit of a race here. So, uh, rooting for Max and all the drivers who are either below the cutoff line or near the cutoff line, I'm rooting for all of them. Um, I know that Max in particular, if he can have another good weekend or two, uh, he might be dragging himself out of uh, no person's land. All right, where do we go here as we start to wind down uh, Ed Roberts, wishing you and your rock star wife the best. Thank you, my, my birthday girl. He says, 2021's been the first year without a graduating any lights driver in the grid. Proud of Ryan Norman joining in this weekend. Is it fair to expect a larger-than-normal crop coming in next season? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, there are a couple, or actually not a couple, what, one, two, maybe? No, maybe just one. Uh, I think Robert McGinnis has been there. What, this is his third year? It just doesn't look like it's working out. So unless there's funding for him to go to IndyCar, I don't think we're going to be seeing a title coming out of uh, Mr. Maginus. Love that kid, by the way. But yeah, some of those that I mentioned earlier in the show would expect two at minimum to make it through. Um, maybe three? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, the uh, the quartet of Malukas, Lundqvist, Kirkwood, and DeFrancesco... Uh, yeah, look for all four by 2023 and yeah, at least one or two next year. Uh, Ryan Norman is the question coming from Eric Franklin. So we'll stick with our man, Ryan. He says, is he a one-off or is this going someplace? Hard to say, but there's hope texted Ryan after that announcement came out and just said, congratulations. Uh, for those who don't know, he will be in a third coin entry this weekend. Good kid. Definitely has put in his time on the road to Indy. Um, He hopes to do more this year and hopes to build this towards something full-time next. So I wish all those things to happen for him. Um, It's been a little strange seeing him go so far on the road to Indy and doing well, not championship material in lights, but doing well in Indy lights, right, to have some success. And then lose him to sports cars. He's been with Brian Herta's team. Um, and 
now he's looking to add some IndyCar in and hoping to come back to open wheel where I think he belongs. So, you know, it's not speaking ill of the kid, but not every driver coming up the road to Indy and even one who might have a pole or a win or whatever else is destined to be holding the Astor cup on high and crowd surfing and whatever, and winning IndyCar championships. But you know, there are role players on every team in every sport and sometimes those role players can have a cool little chapter of their own. I was just looking at uh, some photos from Houston 2014. I think it was when Grumpy Cat, Carlos Huertas won of all things. And it's like, hey, <laughs> Carlos Huertas is an IndyCar race winner, right? And on occasion, he let folks know that he was there. It was never meant for more. It was never going to be more than that. But, hey, he did some cool things, made some amazing memories, and pulled off a couple surprises. If any human being can do that in IndyCar, you're leading a really good life. So, And then you take someone like a Ryan Norman, who is more talented than the majority of us, I think he can do okay in IndyCar. I just don't want to overhype things because I haven't seen a reason to do that yet. But I do hope he gets to do more races. Would love to see him convert full-time. That would be a great thing for any team to have someone who can bring some good backing with him while learning. And then let's see, hopefully, how he develops. Uh, Daniel Summersgill, you're asking, if Jimmy Johnson decides to do the Indy 500 and other ovals in 22 in the number 48 Chip Ganassi car, where does that leave Tony Kanaan? As I understand, Tony signed a two-year deal, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I would have to believe that Chip would indeed uh, make a extra car available for the 500. If Jimmy wanted to do more, I don't know how that settles out or reconciles contractually. Uh, but knowing that they're sharing the same car, meaning there's a single budget for it compared to doubling of budget or whatever, because there's two people in it, there's one budget. One guy does most of the driving. The other guy does the ovals, which isn't a bunch this year. Um, I think there would be interest. I think there'd be enough budget that Jimmy can find to have himself in a car of his own for the 500. So I don't know how to phrase this, I guess is the only thing I'd say, Daniel. Is Tony driving, I don't know if it'd be the number 48, but is Tony staying in that primary entry uh, with the same crew that we see right now for Indy next year. I don't know if that's what his contract calls for. Would Jimmy expand to a fifth car? Maybe it would be numbered 48. I don't know. Again, I'm not so much worried about the car number placed on it, but would that be Ganassi's sports car crew running that for that one-off for Jimmy if he only does the 500 as an extra? I don't know how that works out. Would Tony get moved? to that extra car, whatever number it might be. Again, I don't know, but it sounds like uh, with that two-year contract in place, if Jimmy were to decide, it would be an addition to the plan. And so I don't see a way that Tony loses out in that. And if you look at how Tony performed at the 500 and how he's done on the ovals, you want him in that car. Uh, let's see, Daniel Summersgill. I've never heard of you before, or you're the guy who just asked the question. It says, with uh, Santino Frucci back, mid-Ohio with high V, it's beginning to look 
more likely like RLL will be expending the three cars for 22 as the Ferrucci RLL high V connection really seems to be going well. I agree. Uh, I didn't know if that team was going to connect with him. Did not know if there was going to be happiness, awesomeness, and everythingness. It does appear that there's good chemistry. The he's been among their top performers whenever he's in the car. So I like what I'm seeing. Uh if I am Bob Rahal, if I'm Mike Lanigan, if I'm David Letterman, uh, and if High V is all in and loving the Ferrucci experience, I think you go ahead and get that deal done soon and make it so. Quick little note here. Thanks to everybody who keeps sending them. We'll just say you no longer need to because I got the full picture, and that is IndyCar fans going into their local High V supermarket grocery store, whatever it is exactly. Uh, the amount of photos of, hey, look at the ferrucci size cardboard cutout in front of the store that I'm posing with. Look at the car cutouts placed atop the freezers here and hanging from the, like, it's amazing what they have been doing. It really and truly is. I love it. So that's why I can only assume that they want to do more, should do more, it all looks pretty ridiculous uh, in terms of how much they're doing to support this endeavor and really make it a big deal. So I'd be lying if I said I knew how wide, far-reaching High V was in terms of financially. You know, are they just a giant that is stretched all over the place and they make a zillion million dollars and boy, they've just got plenty to spend on this IndyCar thing. Are they a little smaller, a little more regional? You know, hey, we could probably do half a season's budget. Someone else is going to need to come up with the other three million or whatever. I don't know. Never been in one. I don't know if I've ever actually seen one. But I do love for sure what I'm seeing in terms of activation and So just to your point, Daniel, it looks like they have a really good thing going with Santino. Reading the words from the CEO of Hy-Vee, he slash they love themselves some Santino Ferrucci. So barring a a change that I'm not exactly sure where it would come from or why, we'd probably go to some past examples, but let's not... um, it sounds like everything is headed in a very, very strong direction. And I genuinely hope that that's where they continue to go. Uh, let's see. Jay Dom. How you doing, Jay? Not sure if I've read a question of yours before. If not, thanks for sending it in. Says any word on a contract extension with IndyCar at Road America? I haven't heard, but at no point in time can I ever imagine that there won't be IndyCar at Road America, having gone back and having seen how massively popular it is. So the answer is no, but I don't take that as any kind of negative. I just take it as a, well, yeah, of course they're going to go back. Uh, This is a huge win for both sides. Uh, Where do we go next? Corey Matthews. 
says downtime. What do most teams do with the schedule gap? Would any invest in testing to help with the next part of the season uh, and maybe better than how it started for some? Well, that is an awesome question, Corey. Where this, unfortunately, is not so much of an option in many cases, teams get four private test days total for the year. We see that in many instances, two days, sometimes three, get consumed before the season begins. It leaves, again, one to maybe two open for uh, the close of the season, and you end up getting some fairly strategic choices on where it gets used. So, to your point, they will get used, but maybe not so much just from a mindset of filling the gap. would say it's probably more a case of where are we going, where we feel we can do the best to help ourselves in the championship. Slash, are there any places left on the calendar where we suck? <laughs> and if we don't go there and come up with better things, uh, boy, we are definitely going to be in a very bad place. That's where the decisions tend to come. Just say that it's a little bit independent of uh, the calendar. But yeah, if there was a time to try and use up one or two test days, you'd be thinking about it. Another thing, just to, to finish this part, there's also the the seasonal timing as well. right? You get some teams that go to a track and it's cooler in that part of the year. And you know when you come back, it's going to be hotter. Well, that's why you tend not to have teams do that very often. Uh, some do, but most don't. So if you're going to a place where you know it's going to be hot at that time of year or cooler, there's more value in waiting from a schedule standpoint to get closer to the event so you're closer to that uh, seasonal weather. So whatever you learn in testing will, in theory, uh, be much closer to what you experience come race time. So therefore, that information will correlate. Uh, Jameen Tuttle, MP with a big gap in the schedule. Any word on 2022? Uh, says, with every race this year except Portland having sponsors, does that bode well for most of the current events? Um, says, thanks as always, and hopefully you and the family have a great 4th of July weekend. Thanks, Jameen. I'm thinking we should hear something in the next month. Maybe two know that IMSA traditionally does their State of the Union plus schedule when they get to Road America. IndyCar's not really had a specific, oh, we're at this stage of the year, so therefore we're going to do this in terms of announcing whatever, whatever, I mean, other than the Indy 500 being a place where that can happen quite often. Um, just leads me to think that it would not be crazy for that to maybe one day change uh really truly come up with a plan where on an annual basis uh a lot of important things are announced around the same time there's the caveats of course right well hey maybe you don't get every track signed before you can announce or whatever that date might be where you want to try and do this every year Maybe there's some new stuff you're working on. Maybe it's going to take a little while, blah, blah, blah. So, again, just a couple variables there to consider, but I don't think it's going to be too long. 
I believe we're going to have consistency across the board of all the places we've gone to. Uh, Toronto is maybe the only question mark of, is that something we can keep alive after two cancellations in a row? But after that, you know, and will what we have two double headers this year, will we have a double header at Texas? You know, there was some adjustment early in the calendar this year because of COVID that in theory we won't have next year. So, you know, I think we might have an extra race. I don't, could it go to two maybe, but I don't know if we're going to get past that. Uh, Brandon Fogel says MP. Is there a Nashville track simulator that drivers, teams and manufacturers are utilizing to prepare for the new street race? Says, I'm curious if drivers can get a head start on learning the track via simulator or if they'll all be truly hitting it for the first time and learning it on August 6th. So this has been mapped. This has been simulated, Brandon. And yes, there are drivers learning right now. Uh, some of the unofficial feedback that I have received has said there are one or two parts of the track that are really tight and almost processional so yes we can do that part of the track but there's going to be nothing happening in terms of passing um but that's about all that i've heard so far uh jeff roberts got a question well more of a statement talking about toronto uh, people who deferred their tickets and passes from 2020 to 2021 now had it canceled two years in a row you mentioned there's zero process for refunds um, and then are holding all the ticket holders money until 22, uh, doesn't seem to be a bailout option. I know none of these things to be true or false. So I'm just reading your words. I'm not saying that to get myself out of trouble. I'm just saying that you're bringing, you're presenting something to me as fact. I don't know if it's all fact, but I'm just sharing the words that you're presenting here and asking folks to keep that in mind. Um, you say since 2020, they've been radio silent when with folks asking for refunds or general info. I know that someone replied to your post here and said that they got most of a refund from 2020. You say they no longer have a Toronto office or phone number. Again, I don't know if don't know about that. I do know that um, when I need to call the general manager of the event, Jeff, I'm able to get a hold of him. Um, it says while there is a, a contract with Exhibition Place uh, for 2022 and 23, anything can change in reality. Says when the event went dark in 2008, it almost killed it. Nobody knows if it can rebound after a two-year hiatus, and if Torontonian sponsors and all levels of government support it, same situation carries into 21 and 22 from the looks of it. Yeah, uh, the fears you mentioned are the same ones that I've expressed before. Of will folks forgive a one-year absence of a thing they love? Yes. Uh, if after two years of an absence of that thing, does that become kind of a pattern where you go, well, okay, that thing's gone. Um, and it's been a while since I really loved it. So maybe I not that interested in going back. Certainly. Uh, with some of the aforementioned possible driver changes, not saying that a Canadian driver has to be in the race for Canadians to want to show up and watch it, but with a, a general Torontonian, a mayor, uh, at that in Mr. Hinchcliffe, if by chance he were not in the field, um, how would that sit with folks? I don't know. I realize, I do realize that Dalton Kellett um, is from the greater region as well. Don't know how many, 
I'm going to the race just to see Dalton Kellett fans there are who aren't named Kellett, right? Um, but, yeah, I can only say this because I can't speak with any knowledge about the stuff you've mentioned about tickets and refunds and this and that and the other. And I'm not dismissing any of it, just saying I'm not the expert on this. I would really hope that as soon as possible, if it's going to happen, Green Savory Race Promotions, which is behind the event, will put out a statement saying, it's happening, no matter what, we can do everything we can to get you back, and we're going to make this awesome and keep racing in Toronto. Couple here to close. Aaron Richmond says Penske keeps mentioning two different OEMs. They're talking about coming in IndyCar, considering their new Le Mans relationship with Team Penske in 2023. Uh, wouldn't it stand to reason that one of those OEMs is Porsche? Well, no. Um, Porsche was looking at it a couple years ago and decided it didn't fit. Uh, they have since committed to a hybrid prototype formula. If they were to commit to a hybrid IndyCar formula and have both an American IndyCar and a factory, right? This is would be the full factory behind an IndyCar engine program and a full factory program in IMSA as well. I would think that would be a little bit strange knowing how much money they're spending on this IMSA and WEC global LMDH hybrid program for starting in 23. It's a huge thing that they're doing, like really, truly huge. To then tack on something not as huge, but similarly huge, it'd be a shocker to me, Aaron, if they were to do that. I'd love it. It'd be, I mean, truly, it'd be amazing. It'd be a shock, though. Uh, another thing which I've written about many times and know to be true, what they're using for an engine in their LMDH is a road derived version of the Porsche Cayenne twin turbo V8. So that is a large displacement production originated racing tuned twin turbo V8. Uh, nothing like IndyCar's 2023 engine formula, which is significantly smaller in terms of displacement and two fewer cylinders. So there's no way the LMDH engine fits in an IndyCar, physically fits, or by regulation fits. So if they were to do it, they would have to invest half a hundred million dollars to do a custom engine program for multiple years. So I just think they're not the one. Want them to be the one? Don't think they're the one. Uh, closing here on a trio of Prude items. One from our pal Jeremiah Morrell says, It is mid-Ohio this weekend, and many of the Prude are going to be there. Does MP have a mission for us? <sighs> I do. Uh Go to our pal, Derek Koska. I'm going to find out where they're, where Derek's going to be with the TorontoMotorsports.com uh, merchandise trailer. Uh, I need you to get a handful of Cartoon Anvil protection stickers and go to Andretti Autosport and give those to... I'm giving them to everybody. I don't know if Colton really needs them, but Rossi needs a couple. 
Hunter Ray, he's the original guy they were designed for, but give him a couple of new ones. Give some to Hinch. Then go over to Air McLaren SP. Find my favorite miniature Swede, that being Felix Rosenquist. Love that kid. And tell him directly, Marshall told us to come here and give you five cartoon anvil protection stickers because he needs them. And hopefully he'll laugh. And they also say some curse words because that's awesome. And then go to Team Penske and find Joseph Newgarden. And you don't have to tell him I sent him, but uh, sent you. But get some to him, get some to Will Power, get some to Simon, get some to Scotty Mack. Cover off that whole team. Uh, Penske doesn't need any. Uh, give one to Edge. All right, I'm kind of filling up the field here. I'm sorry. Go to Coin. Give a couple to Roma, right? He's had a couple of rough events, but get some to Roma. Get some to Ed Jones. My gosh. Cover Ed Jones' entire car in Cartoon Anvil protection stickers. He needs them. Um, That's the mission. Go do it. Go make it happen. And don't hand them off to a guy that you see wearing a shirt for the team. Like, find the drivers. Hand them directly. If you don't, it's bad luck, right? Yell at them, uh, get them through the fence, whatever you got to do, get them to those drivers. Because where they put them, I don't know. On the car, on their helmet, inside their suit, hidden in their underwear, I don't know. Whatever they need to protect, wherever they feel the protection should originate from, make that happen. Uh, granted, part of this season's amazing storyline has been because of the crazy unforeseen drama, so maybe I'm damaging the season, but helping some drivers who maybe could use it. So, yeah, that's a good thing. That washes out in the end. Um, John Wojnar, kind of one of the leaders of the group as well. As I mentioned, Prude meetup at the Toronto Motorsports Trailer at Mid-Ohio. Great. Do it. Um, I look forward to the photos and the mockery that comes my way. Uh, Bill Gray, you close the show. You say Top Gun Racing is selling uh, four by two. I assume that's four inch by two inch, not four foot by two. Four by two spaces to sponsors for a race. They may or may not run. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, what's the craziest thing you'd want to see the Prude put on the car? Oh, boy. My mind. <laughs> uh, my mind goes to devious places. Uh, vaporware.com. That would be, I mean, if you're going to pay money to be on a car for a race that may or may not participate in, uh, something uh, acknowledging vaporware, I would say, would be uh, pretty smart. Um, I got it. Yeah, okay, we're going to do it officially because it's never happened uh, in an IndyCar race that's real, and that is we're going to put Mark Plourd, P-L-O-U-R-D-E. We're going to put Mark Plourd's name on an actual IndyCar that may or may not participate in an IndyCar race. Why? Mark Plourd is a, what, seven-time uh, champ car champion? having uh, somehow taken over the Champ Car website and come up with fake championship seasons uh, year after year where he positions himself or his wife as the champion. And if you didn't know, and I don't know if it's still active or not, it's been years since I looked, but uh, Plourd, you would, for those who found themselves at the champcar.ws World Series website, it looked like Champ Car never went away. And this guy you'd never heard of, Mark Plourd was just kicking ass and taking names. And so he'd position himself as the champ year after year. And again, I think he put his wife in there for a title or two. Um, but it was all fake. 
is entirely made up and Lord love him. Uh, it's something he made time for. So there you go. Uh, he needs his name on an actual Indy car that might not part that might not be real, uh, but might not participate in a race. But if it does, we got to get his name on the car. So I know nothing about this. I, I truly, a lot of what you guys send in, I have no clue what you're talking about or where it comes from, but I just kind of roll with it. Uh, but for sure here, Bill, I need some info. I need to know how much the four by two is and all right, you know, we don't really have any money to spare, but let me know what it is. And I'll try and sell some more of something to, to drum up the money. So that's your mission here, Bill. Uh, let me know. And uh, maybe it'll be, yeah, courtesy of the Day for sure. And uh, we're going to get Mark Plourd on a real IndyCar and hope that it takes place in a real event. All right. Uh, thank you, y'all. Visit MarshallPruittPodcast.com. We've got more than a 1,000 episodes there for you and a new merchandise page. Uh, if you buy stuff, all I'm saying is thank you. It helps us. It helps us. It helps us. Uh, Cooper Tires, thank you. Justice Brothers, thank you. TorontoMotorsports.com, eh, all right, we'll give you a thank you. <laughs> <laughs>